<laughs> Welcome. Here we are to the 1% in recovery. Successful gamblers and alcoholics stopping addiction. <laughs> now out, we have the 12 Steps Explained course to guide you through the 12 steps in 90 days. Got to save time and actually get to the heart of the issues. Got to get to all the emotional issues. And with that, we also do recovery coaching. All you have to do is tap into me, Hugo V, lifeiswonderful.love website. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Dan Trelaro. How are you doing, Dan? I'm doing great, Hugo. Thanks for having me on. How are you today? <laughs> doing well, man. Always talking about recovery. I always say recovery is a beautiful thing. It we really just got to say your EQs, your IQ, man. We talk, we're talking about recovery and talk, especially two gamblers. We got some stories. It's going to be a, always excellent uh, to bring you on. <laughs> awesome. Glad to be here. And I just love the name of the podcast. Life is wonderful because it's certainly more wonderful, not gambling. And you start to feel that love again. So I just love the title of it, too. All right, let's first start off with tell the audience one thing you love. You know, I. I'm a huge sports guy, and I have to go with what's in season right now and New York football giants. we got big games. We're making the playoffs. We beat the Vikings last week. So I'm a New York Giants. I'm a sports guy. I love watching football. And for this week, that's where my heart is with the New York Giants. I got you. Hey, and I was born in New York City, and I know the field of the whole Northeast. Yeah, but now I'm, I'm all, all, all Texas teams now, but... <laughs> Good luck. Well, we have the rival. We have the rival Eagles. So that's something we both have in common then because Cowboys <laughs> exactly. and Giants, neither one of them. And I lived Eagles. outside of Philly. So well, let's just kind of let's first dive into the first question. You now are working with Epic Risk Management. You are talking a lot about gambling awareness. Why don't you tell the audience what you're doing now and how because gambling is being just pushed so hard. What are what what are you trying to accomplish and what what do you do and what do you see out there? Sure. Yeah, great question. You know, you, you just said it so right. You know, gambling is expanding across the United States. You know, we've had brick and mortar casinos in, in various states for, for decades. And then there was internet and mobile device gambling that started taking off. And most recently, as of 2018, we saw the repeal of PASPA, which pa paved the way for sports betting to be legalized. State by state, not federal, not at a national level, but at a state level. And boy, I tell you, Hugo, it has opened up the door for such a need of people to understand what is sports betting? What does it look like? What does it feel like? How can I develop a problem with it? And that's kind of what we're starting to see as the issue and what we tackle. You know, Epic was founded by a gentleman named Paul Buck in the UK around 10 years ago. And he also is a gambler in recovery. And he started Epic Risk Management while sitting in a jail cell outside of London, England, saying that he had a gambling problem and he needed to do something different. And so he started working with professional sport teams over in the UK. And then over the last several years, having built that base up, has expanded into the United States where we about three years ago, we partnered with the NCAA uh, to deliver education sessions to college student athletes. You know, we see college and athletes as two very vulnerable populations. You and I know gambling doesn't discriminate. It can affect anybody at any given point in time, regardless of what sector you work in. But we're trying to hit the younger demographic because marketing does matter. And we're seeing a lot of young adults, adolescents, teens, emerging adults, whatever you want to say, we're seeing them exposed to gambling earlier than ever. 
you know, whether it's video games that they play that have gambling mechanics in them, whether it's normalizing spending of money at an earlier age on games, they are starting to become the gateway into age 21 sports betting and other types of gambling. So we work with the NCAA, we work with other professional sport leagues in the United States to provide education and awareness around what does gambling harm look like? What makes an individual vulnerable? Why are athletes potentially at a higher risk than non-athletes, right? We talk about personality traits. And so we do a lot of the education around that. Now, I will always say I'm not anti-gambling. I'm only against gambling for myself. I don't have a healthy relationship with gambling. I'll be 13 years in recovery on February 11th, and I'm very thankful for that. I can't gamble. I don't understand what normal quote-unquote gambling is. But we encourage people that if you decide to make a decision to gamble, do so responsibly, do it safely. And we give them some guidelines. You know, what does that look like? What does that even mean? And Hugo, I'll say one of the big takeaways from being on college campuses that we've noticed collectively as an organization was that today's college student who bets on sports does not see it as gambling, which is mind blowing to me. They see it as a side job an easy way to make money because they say that they're so informed and they follow it so closely. They know when to close out their bet. They know when to get an early withdrawal. And it, it, they almost look at it as more as a money management system than a form of gambling. And that's really concerning from our perspective. Well, the thing that they don't realize is, is that the gambling industry, the casinos are much smarter than each individual college student. Everything is already predicated, all the information, like everything in a casino with no windows, the carpet, the music, the free drinks, they know how to extract money from you. That's why the casinos get bigger and bigger. Hotels get much more luxurious. No different than sports betting. People think that, especially when you have all these actors, Kevin Hart, Jamie Foxx saying, you know, give us $5, we'll give you $200 in free play. And the thing that you're saying is it's amazing is how we don't really focus on the undeveloped brain, thinking, not yeah. really understanding consequences, because it, what you're saying is the same thing is this newer generation doesn't think marijuana is addictive as a whole. And it's almost like saying like what you were saying, it's a money management thing. That's like saying that, well, I'm not going to use condoms and I'm just going to work on my pullout game, thinking yeah. that. They can control all these situations and you cannot. No, you can't. And it's just, and that's the scary part. And I think the other thing that what people are grooming on is it didn't happen to me because I didn't see it. And it came in kind of after I started gambling was the fantasy sports. How like yeah, that's fantasy, a pathway. How, how high school, middle schoolers and high schoolers are starting with their fantasy teams and that's grooming them into the sports betting. And I think what you said is, is I think athletes, athletes are much more susceptible to sports betting, just like the lower economic people are much more susceptible to scratch offs and lottery. And it's almost like those are the things. And I think and, and if you really look at the advertising that's why I say is how smart they are. The advertising is geared to that niche population on how they're going to get them. And that's, you know, it's it's interesting when you look at athletes. And we th I think that was a great analogy around athletes with the sports betting, because we also see those same individuals who have a higher propensity for, to your point, the daily fantasy sports, day trading, cryptocurrency. 
you know, there's this concept of novelty and this concept of research. What we often find with the sports betting is that people will romance that process of research. You know, there it, you talk to so many sports bettors who are now in recovery. They say they would open up, start researching the lines of the teams as early as Wednesday before the Sunday games. And you're following it all week long. And there's the research component. What's the wind? What's the environment? What's the record, the spread, the injuries? And you're factoring in all of these pieces of data and you're computing it and you're coming out with what in your mind is a logical conclusion. And now you're putting your money on that very big play potentially. So there's some ego involved, right? I'm smarter than you. I know more than you. And I want to prove and exercise my dominance And that way, if I do win, I can brag. So there's this element of research, the ego, and the novelty. This is new. It's shiny. Uh, Bells and whistles, free plays, right? Uh, Same game parlays. All All these terms sound so alluring. You say, why not give it a try? But you hit a you hit it on the head, Hugo. You said that developing brain. You know, the UK did a study. It was it's on the BBC. It's on YouTube. It's about a four and a half minute video where they put a, a person with a gambling problem inside an MRI machine and they took a look at his brain while he was playing roulette. And what they concluded was it's not just the winning that counts. It's the anticipation of the bet and the participation in the activity. And so your brain is constantly firing. And when you start doing that every 20 seconds, 30 seconds, every minute, and you normalize that behavior, those neurons are starting to get wired together. And now all of a sudden, that good time turns into a habit. And that's how it can start to turn into problematic use. It never starts as a problem. It starts as a fun time. And it can escalate from there. Right. Like I always said is, is the most high I was gambling was in the morning when I saw the lines. And then I could, yeah. I could build up the whole high throughout the day, place the bet, win or lo- lose. But I was most high in the morning, and that's what got me up in the morning. I would agree with you. As a former sports better, because I played blackjack too, and for, for me, sports betting, the mornings were always the best in terms of – because getting in those last bets, doing that last bit of research. And I've heard people who play with the daily fantasy sites, they do the same thing. They're analyzing. They're researching up until kickoff. And then they get into this lull. Now what? Now I have to watch the game. What the hell do I want to do that for? You know, <laughs> exactly. you don't want to watch the game. You want to now start researching the four o'clock games. And so now right. you're half watching and now you're half watching the four o'clock. And then you want and to then research you're trying the to figure o'clock. up if you're up or down. And then you're trying to make bets based upon, well, I'll figure I'll win 65 or 70% of this. So I'm going to have this amount of money. It's nonstop thinking, nonstop um, activity. Everything's firing all the time. There's no peace. There's no rest. Exactly. Well, let's go into question two. So I, I know your story, but you know you're you're someone intelligent. You get you are in well paying jobs. You are an athlete. How do you cross that line? And look, in almost any gambler, I mean, you know, I did criminal activity. I just didn't have to spend time in jail. Can you address is how do you think a compulsive gam like someone who does let's say gambling, then does some problem gambling, then does some compulsive gambling. And then they get to the point where they can actually not only contemplate, but actually do criminal activity. You know, 
That's a great question. And I, and I recently, back in the fall, I did a, uh, a YouTube video for Mark Leda, who does Soft White Underbelly. And the title of, if I could go back and do that again, the title, Recovered Gambler, right? Recovered Compulsive Gambler. Because you and I know you're never fully recovered from addiction. And I want to first premise with that, because we talked about criminal activity and we talked about my journey through that. And in no way, shape or form am I ever fully recovered I'm in the pro- active process day after day of staying in recovery and never fully recovered. Because if I ever think to myself that I'm fully recovered, then I could go very right straight back to those same behaviors that led to the criminal activity. How did I get to that point? You know, it's it's funny when I go backwards from time to time and think about those decision points, I can clearly look at some really big events that had a big impact on me. And I know, having lived through September 11th and having been outside the towers, I was not in the towers. I was less than a quarter mile away from them. But having seen what I had seen that day, bodies hitting the pavement, people jumping from windows and having lost 14 friends that day and and two more to suicide in the weeks that followed, I didn't realize that impacted me at the time. But that was the seed that was kind of planted that kind of continued to grow. I mean, I was exposed to gambling at an early age from childhood. And we always talk about early exposure. You know, you normalize gambling. And I did from time to time do things that were illegal in high school. I was running a poker game at the local public library next to the police station. I mean, that's brazen, you know, and I got a slap on the wrist for that. Hey, don't do this anymore. Okay. But I had those personality traits where I've always been kind of that, that, that risk taker. I was competitive. You know, I had that fear of failure. I think I had low self-esteem. I wanted people to like me. I was a people pleaser. And, and when you start looking at those, those qualities and traits, you start realizing this, this could become a recipe for disaster. And when you combine it then with adverse childhood experiences or traumatic events, like September 11th, having lost so many people, I went back to that thing that made me feel good, which was gambling. It was normalized. It was something that I saw as an acceptable thing to do with no harm. The problem was I started doing it as a way to escape problems. And I needed to do more and more of it on a daily basis, just like alcohol. People who drink, you know, you don't just get drunk off a beer anymore. Your tolerance builds. Well, my gambling tolerance was building such to the fact that I ran out of money. You know, I didn't have a money problem. I had an emotional problem and money I needed to continue to keep that at bay. So when I had access to finances, I remember when I stole my first check, Hugo, I sat in my car 15 minutes saying, I can't believe I just stole a check for $10,000 from a client who's trusted me with their future. And I took that check and I put it in my bank account and I justified it. I said to myself, this is a loan. I'm not a bad person. I will repay this money to that individual. And within three days, I lost that money gambling. And I continued to chase either the feeling of gambling or chase to try to make things right, which continued. We know how it goes. You continue to go down that rabbit hole. And before I knew it, I think I had probably embezzled and and stolen over a half million dollars before I started thinking about it again. Ultimately, I took over $2 million uh, over a 20-month period. And I knew at some point I was going to get caught, but I just didn't know another way out. And I don't, I don't really have a different answer than that. I don't know what I was thinking. I can't go back and give an exact answer. But I remember thinking, like, what's the point? I'm going to get caught eventually, so I might as well just keep doing it. Maybe I'll get lucky someday. As a gambler, 
I was a hope fiend. And I heard that phrase from a gentleman in Baltimore on a YouTube video. He said, people who do drugs, they might be a dope fiend. But as a gambler, you're a hope fiend. And I was. I mean, I could not get away from it, hoping that something would be different. It just never was. Yeah, the reason I asked that question, and thank you for your answer, is is because a lot of times people on the outside that don't really understand addiction, they'll say, well, how did you do this? Well, why didn't you stop thinking it was like a willpower thing and don't understand that there are so many other things at play. Like for me, I didn't realize how being bullied in the first grade about my name or when a girlfriend of mine got pregnant and then she chose to have an abortion, how all these things kind of like add up. And there's so many things that happen in a person's life. It's not usually just one simple thing. It's it's almost like a com- a combination of things. And then before you know it, you're like, yeah, but okay. And like we have, like we all have good intentions. And then, but invariably it doesn't end well. Yeah. And it reminds me of the movie Owning Mahoney with Philip Seymour Hoffman. The first time that he took money from this line of credit from this woman that he sat there and he really debated for about 10 minutes. But then the second time it was a lot easier. The third time was easier. And it says, I know what I'm doing. I'm going to get it I always say that too. I say the first time was the hardest one. You know, I grew up in the church. I grew up with grandparents that had me going to church all the time. You know, I was, I was, relatively strong in my faith. And and the one thing I'll say is that I drifted. I mean, when I started going down that path, I didn't step foot in the church. The guilt, the shame. I mean, that's a lot of what we talk about with addiction, the feelings of guilt and shame. Um, but you're so, you know, addiction is that is that is that dysfunctional relationship. You know, it takes you into the corner, it kicks the crap out of you and you hate it, but then you keep chasing and going back to it because you love it at the same time. And it's just a really strange dynamic. Um, And for people who don't understand addiction, they sure as hell have a hard time understanding gambling addiction because you're not putting anything into your bloodstream. You're not consuming anything. So you're often just called greedy or money hungry. But that was not the case. I mean, I I suffered from a a non-substance related disorder. My brain, if you look at my brain, it was acting all kind of crazy. It actually lights up the same way as someone who's a cocaine addict. The same regions are, are activated. So it's you don't have to put a substance in your body to be impacted. We know that. Well, the thing that people also don't realize is the gambling mind, the cocaine mind, and actually falling in love all lights up the same areas. Because mm. alcohol and marijuana are depressants. They come down and don't realize we get excited and almost stimulated with cocaine, gambling, and love. And yeah. if you almost made a joke is, tell me what cocaine... Gambling and love have in common. And most people would be like, "What are you talking about?" It's going pregnancy. You're, you're <laughs> all all those hormones are all on the same. They're firing at the same level, and that's what's the kind of scary part about uh, you know about those three things. Yeah, that's a so great tell point. Me one yeah. other thing. Let's go into question number three. Question number three is if you. If you see where gambling is going, how do you see the kind of the 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 advertising? And really, that's where I see a lot of things kind of being different. And like you were talking about the UK, Europe's already been dealing with this for a decade or longer. We're like the new kid on the block. We don't really understand how this is going to happen. And 
just tell me what you think about the all the, you know, what I always say is even the states, we have, we our taxpayer money, like in Texas, goes to encourage people to play the Texas lottery, the Texas scratch-offs. And just tell me what you think about all the, the gambling or the advertising. Yeah, you know, advertising is a big thing, right? Marketing, advertising, that's how you gain customers. That's how you keep customers. And so a couple of things we've noticed in the States, what makes the United States slightly unique from other other countries around the world is that we have 50 different states and not every state has legalized sports betting. Not every state has the same types of gambling. So the laws vary state by state, as do therefore the enforcement, the regulations and the le- and state legislation. Um, I think marketing, I think there needs to be marketing restrictions similar to what we have with alcohol um, in place. We need to have some limits, whether it's time of day when marketing ads appear. They've started looking at that in Australia and some other areas around the globe, whether it's the type of advertisement, you know, it has to be a little bit more balanced, whether it's the terminology, you know, the phrase a risk free bet doesn't sit well with me. There's no such thing as a risk free bet. So really taking a look at that, but also, you know, listen, we're going to have some operators that are going to do things to to throw out a lot of marketing pieces to try to generate customers. And if they're found in violation of a state statute or rules, the fine should be increased. And those monies should be immediately de- be deployed to those agencies that are trying to help reduce the incidence of gambling related problems or to provide treatment centers or to provide resources, not just for the person with the gambling problem, Hugo, but what about the loved ones and the affected others? That's something we do not talk about enough. It's something where we do not have enough resources allocated. When you have a person with a gambling problem drain the savings accounts, the house is in foreclosure, and they can barely put food on the table, the the spouse who's the non-gambler says, what do I do? How do I make ends meet? I've got three kids to provide for. I can't get a job because the, the husband's working to fuel his gambling addiction. What's the recourse? And so we really need to, to take a look at it from a, uh, a public health perspective, right? It's a growing public health issue. So we need to set some restrictions. We need to be very aware of what the content is. We need to have more celebrities and public figures speaking out about <clears throat> being responsible and safe with your gambling. It's a form of entertainment. Budget accordingly. It's not used to pay bills. And some of the games, you know, we... Part of me wonders, like some of the safeguards and provisions need to be really honed in and fine tuned so that we can protect people at times from themselves. That's a loaded gun. And I and I understand that. But we have the capabilities to track player behavior very clearly. We know a lot of information around players and their behavior. Marketing ads are immediately pushed out to people to place another bet after they win. So we have to be very careful with the inundation of the marketing because marketing and advertising motivates a, a behavior and we're a consumer-driven economy. So we have to be very careful. I think we need to scale it back. And I think there needs to be some safeguards and some, some parameters put around it and more monies towards research, uh, social services, and treatment for both the person with the gambling problem as well as funds available for affected others. It's almost like the 80-20 rule is because the casinos and any other types of sports books, they're relying on actually less than 20% of the people who bet to really generate all the revenue. They're really banking on the compulsive gambler to keep coming back and back and back and back. And 
that's the part that I just see that there's not enough written in any of the laws to really booster treatment. It's so hard to get treatment for a compulsive gambler. It's easy if you're an alcoholic, you have an eating disorder, you have depression. But if you have a gambling disorder, they, most insurance are, you know, really don't want to, they don't really understand it. And I think that's where the work that you and my eye are doing is, is, is so vital. We need more people that understand compulsive gambling and are willing to share their story as well as the information. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm happy to be here and I'm, I'm honored that you asked me to join and, you know, happy to support and fight this good cause with you, brother. All right. Any last words? One last little thought you want to throw out there? You know, life is wonderful. I just keep going back to that as I'm looking at it here. You know, life is definitely wonderful when not in active addiction. And it's it's a daily battle. You know, some days are easier than others. You know, February 11th will mark 13 years for me um, in recovery. And if you would have told me day one that I couldn't gamble or I wouldn't gamble 13 years later, I would have thought you were absolutely nuts. And so it's it's a helpful reminder for anyone watching or listening who's contemplating or in early recovery. It is possible, but just take it a moment at a time. You know, take it a second at a time, a day at a time, whatever that manageable chunk is. And over time, it does get better. Uh, it's about creating a new environment where the gambling no longer fits in. That was the key for me. I tried to keep the gambling out, but I tried to keep all my same friends and keep doing the same patterns of living. That did not work. And if I would have continued, I would have gone right back to gambling. I instead had to create a whole new life where the gambling just doesn't fit in anymore. I had to change things. And that's when it started getting better. It does. Once we start to address and understand that compulsive gambling is an emotional disease and that gambling always lies to you, yeah, we can actually then realize, especially for the compulsive gambler, it always lies, like you had said about the hope fiend comment. You know, it, we, we believe in things that are just not there. So with that, we are going to conclude this episode. So like Dan said, the company is still lifeiswonderful.love. But as we noticed, so few people get this, unfortunately. And that's what Dan and I are trying to do. The podcast is 1% in recovery. But I really want more and more people to get it. So more and people can live this wonderful life. With that, that will conclude this episode.